Uh, I'm going to open some, open us up in prayer, and then we can kind of get started. So, Father, thank you for this day that you've given us. Um, we pray that you'd be with us today, uh, we'd be, that you'd be with the church, that you'd um, uh, give us open hearts to hear what you have for us, that you would um, straighten any uh, crooked words that I have to say um, about your word, uh, and that you would be with um, this time. Uh, may it be a time of enrichment and uh, a deeper um, understanding and gratitude for what you've done for us. We pray also for the worship next hour that you do with the leaders and um, that you help us to also have open hearts uh, for that time as well. And it's in your name we pray. All right, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. I told Jeremy this is the first time I've ever done in expositional kind of approach. It's usually, it's always been topical up until now. So um, bear with me. And um, if I, if I don't do well, then I'll try again next time. As a professional teacher, I always get nervous teaching Sunday school. I can rattle off pharmacology like it's no problem, but this stuff is, is deeper. Um, just by way of review, the Ephesians, um, the book of the Ephesians is uh, a book that was written by Paul so the church in Ephesus, he had visited previously. Damien's trying to see if he could come out. We were waiting for you. Sorry. <laughs> um, he's writing from prison, um, and he's writing the this letter to the church in Ephesus around the same time as he is writing the um, the book, the clock to the church of Colossae. Um, and I'll talk about that because there's a couple of um, kind of, not contemporary, but kind of similar uh, um, <coughs> passages that coincide, similar points that we'll kind of make between the two. So the main themes are identity um, and unity. And so our passage today is going to focus a lot on both. So this is from last week. I kept it up because I want to do a quick review about uh, what we talked about, I guess, two weeks ago with Devin um, in chapter 2, um, ten, uh, 1 through 10. <clears throat> so chapter 1 rolls out this spiritual reality. We have blessing and predestination and redemption, forgiveness, riches of grace. And it's a general statement about our status, our identity. Um, and that leads to this kind of thanksgiving and prayer and the reference to the church in the late, later part of chapter 1. And so I want to echo what the previous teachers have talked about, this idea of redemption following obedience um, or indicative follow, followed by imperative um, or positional followed by practiced. Um, and it goes along with the Owen quote that we've kind of mentioned several times. Our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. So... In this passage that we'll be talking about today, we are going to follow that theme of identity and then what that identity means for the Christian church. And unlike the previous passages, Paul is going to start this passage talking about a specific group of people. He's going to single out the Gentiles specifically and do this like really kind of cool compare and contrast between the Gentiles and the Jews that ties in the history of those two peoples in this really succinct way that I think is, is really helpful. But the chat, the verse, the chapter or verse 11 starts with a therefore, which means that we have to think about what happened before because he's applying what happened in the first part of chapter two to what he is going to roll out in the second part of chapter two, this um, passage from 11 to 22. So chapter two, he levels the playing field, right? He says, all are this way. He doesn't separate Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. He says, all are dead in trespasses and sins. Devin talked about the extremes of this. This is not, um, you're kind of not, you're not so okay and you're okay. This is, everybody is dead and needs to be made alive. And then we have this first kind of, but God. And we have one of these in the second part uh, in our passage today, but God in verse four changed status from dead to alive, the identity, um, the uh, privileges that Owen talked about. 
changed our status, dead to alive, and Devin um, referred back to uh, the hearts of stone being transformed into hearts of flesh. He talked about the Valley of Dry Bones. Those kinds of are all this theme of change in status, radical change in status that's occurring to everybody who is in Christ. And this chapter specifically, chapter two, and we'll talk about it when we get into our text, does a lot of talking about in Christ. You hear in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, over and over and over again. It's a repeated theme. The two biggest repeated themes that I see in the entire chapter two are in Christ, this status change and what in Christ actually means. And there's a lot of talk about peace, especially in the second half. And the reason why there's a lot of talk about peace is because there's in this in the second half of the chapter, it's talking a lot about these people were against each other. There's this horizontal and the vertical. These people were against each other and all of you were against God. And there's a peace that is now happening between God and man and between Jew and Gentile. So that's what's kind of happening here. So this new status, 8 to 10, leads to new works, and all of these things are happening in Christ Jesus. So we are, we are doing this redemption and then obedience, this indicative and then imperative, this identity and then the results of the identity and what that means. <clears throat> Squeaky shoes. <laughs> Can't sneak in. <laughs> um So I'm going to read the text, and then we can kind of dig into it. Uh, This is uh, Ephesians 2, 11 through 24. Therefore, through 22, there's not a 24. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, there's that but, but now, same as verse four, chapter two, verse four, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of, the, of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached, a, preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father." So then, so indicative, imperative. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So just by way of overview, and then I'm hoping that we can kind of walk through each of the verses together and kind of pull out some important points. Um, Chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, is really focused on the vertical reality. There's enmity and hostility between God and man, and Jesus has taken care of that. He has made peace in this vertical reality. In 1122, there's a horizontal reality that's going on. So God is, through Jesus is, through his cross, breaking down the hostility between Jew and Gentile, going from taking two peoples and making one new people. And then what happens? We, he's going to build his holy temple. He's going to build his church as one new people. So there's a horizontal reality, not only in there's a reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. There's a breaking down of that separation that in many ways, physical separation we'll talk about in chapter in verse 13. But there's a breaking down of that to the point where you are going from hostility, extreme hostility 
the kind of extreme hostility that we probably don't even have in our world right now in terms of the, the separation that occurred between these two people groups. Two, not only are they going to have peace with each other, but they're going to be building the church together as one new people. And this follows kind of the same pattern as chapter one. Chapter one is reminder of past truths, past truths. In this case, for our verses, the past truth of the division between Jew and Gentile. And now the present reality and now the implications of that present reality. So you have God is reconciling you two people groups into one. And the implications are that you are together as one new person person, he talks about person or man, is going to build the church. Um, the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting, and y'all correct me if this is not, if I'm going too deep here, but he talks a lot about like in verse two, uh, chapter two, verse three, he talks about in the flesh versus in Christ. And he does this again in verse 11. He talks about the circumcision made in the flesh by hands and contrast that with in the in Christ Jesus as kind of a contrast between the two. So um, Paul, generally speaking, is when he talks about the Gentiles, and he starts in verse 11 and 12, he's talking about, uh, I use Stott's commentary a decent amount because it's easy to read and it's not very technical. I think the whole chapter had like four Greek words, so it's great. <laughs> Um, he talks about this double alienation that the Gentiles were previously under, but that he's describing in 11 and 12. There's an alienation from God, and there was an alienation from the Jews or from the holy people. So there's a double alienation that's happening. So the Jews had alienation from God because of what their vertical relationship was. But the Gentiles had this vertical separation from God, but also a horizontal separation from what was perceived to be the holy people, the people of God. Um, and Colossians, this is the first kind of corollary between um, uh, Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 and Colossians 1, 21 and 22. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds have now, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So verse 11 talks about um, the Gentiles in the flesh. And he uses, Paul uses these derogatory terms for Gentiles. So he uses the word, he says, called the uncircumcision. And the, the sense that I get and what the commentators kind of talk about is like this, he is, he is not, it's not that he's making fun of this, but he's identifying that there is an issue there. Th these are derogatory terms and they don't actually represent what's truly going on. So he says, uh, you were one time at one time past tense called the, the uncircumcision, the unholy, the, the cast castaways by what is called the circumcision. He's referring to the Jews there. It's, they call themselves the circumcision, but they've strayed just as much as well. And he gets to that by saying, which is made in the flesh by hands. It's made in the flesh by hands. This is a work that they have elevated to the point of separation, and it's not salvific. It's not getting them any closer to God. This work, they've made it into something much more than it is. <clears throat> Again, that the, the terms the flesh, this is flesh versus in Christ, the separation of those realities. Um, so what Paul is doing here, similar to what he does in the first three verses of the chapter, is he's leveling the playing field. He's saying, you were called the uncircumcision. You were called these bad people, but these Jews were no better. They were calling themselves the circumcision and were relying on that act, that status as their salvation and both of you guys are lost. And, and this is all man-made. What you have done is in yourselves and not according to what God has done. <clears throat> if someone could pull up Galatians two, uh, 5, 2 through 6, I think this really kind of brings home this idea of circumcision and what Paul thinks about circumcision. Did you say Galatians 5, 
5? Yeah, Galatians 5, 2 through 6. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So this is a, a little bit more of an, him, him kind of expounding on this idea. So this is his, when he's talking about the uncircumcision and the circumcision, this is what he's talking about. This is a useless thing. You've overemphasized this circumcision thing. You've taken this sign of the covenant and rested on it instead of resting on God and by extension what Christ has done. And then in verse 12, remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers of the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he goes from this name-calling thing, this you're the uncircumcision, which is kind of superficial, to actually what their status used to be, what their problems actually were. And there's five problems. They were separated from Christ. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenant of covenants of promise. They, were, they had no hope and they were without God in the world. So let's kind of break each one of these down. So they were separated from Christ. Romans 9, 4 through 5. They are Israelites, and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So unlike uh, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, the, the Gentiles were separated from Christ. They didn't even have a lineage that included Christ. So their, their separation from Christ is in some senses more complete because they, they weren't even related to him like the Israelites were. And then alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So they were alienated from, they were not compatriots. They were not in this, the same nationality as the Israelites. But this word commonwealth, from the not from me, from the... Um, from the commentators, is more than just like this state status. When they when they talked about being alienated from the Commonwealth, this was like alienated from like full citizenship with the rights and the duties and the privileges that we would talk about being part of the uh, United States, right? At one point, uh, one of the commentators says like, it's the difference between uh, being in a country on a passport versus having a birth certificate. Like you're part of this citizenship and they were alienated from that. And so there were a lot of privileges associated with uh, the Commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenants. There was a plural there. So it's not just this covenant that gave circumcision. He's talking about all of the covenants of promise. So he's not talking about all the covenants. And I, I don't know that I would put this in the same thing as the covenant of works versus covenant of grace that we've kind of talked about before. Um, but this is a, the covenants of promise. They were alienated. They were separated from those covenants that God promised to be faithful to his people and fulfill his word to them. Those were those promises, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. They were all promises. They were all covenants that were made, and the Gentiles are separated from them. So this, trans, this is more than just the idea of a, the circumcision covenant of being God's people. Having no hope and without God in the, in the world. So the without God in the world, um, the idea of this is not just that they're not believing, but they are godless ethically. They're godless people and they're forsaken by God. So think Romans 1. These are not, this is not just a passive without God. Like God's, God's over there and I'm over here. This is, there's a passive component to that, but the way that the, the structure of the word is like, this is an active, like you're not just passively without God, you're actively pushing God away as a people. Um, and I, I love how uh, Stott, or Stott might be quoting someone else, 
He said, in sum, they were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. So all five of those things. But then we get to the good news. And by extension, before we get to the good news, this is, is generally considering this is our status. So we would be considered the Gentiles um, in this passage. So we can kind of superimpose ourselves into this uh, situation, right? Even though that doesn't, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, the Jews and Gentiles are both as far away from God as they need to be. Um, we would be identified more with the Gentiles. So verses 13 through 16 or 13 through 18 is kind of where we see this good news. Um, Christ is breaking down the middle wall. Christ is breaking down hostility and he's breaking down the law of commandments. So this is going to kind of get into the meat of our conversation about or the theme of hostility and peace. Hostility between God and man. Hostility between Jew and Gentile. And we have that but God phrase that we had in 2.3, we have in 2.13. But now you were all these terrible things. You were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. But now here's your new status. You were far off. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is alienation to reconciliation. And it's again in and through Jesus Christ. And in this in this verse, and I the com and I'm I don't know that I totally understand exactly what this is, but the idea is like he talks a lot about, he says, in Christ Jesus as a status thing, like a, a present status thing, but then he also uses the blood of Christ or his flesh was broken. And so there's a, there's a sense in which there's a status of being in Christ Jesus, but that some of the things that were, the, the things that were accomplished that we talk about here are through the blood, through the cross. So he's making a distinction between the, the action of the cross and what the cross did for us and our now, our new status. But now in Christ Jesus, your status is this because of what happened in the cross. So in Christ Jesus, your status now, if you have, if what has happened to you in verses two, uh, one through 10 happened to you, you are now in Christ Jesus. Um, but in this, at the end, it says the blood of Christ. So that the cross is accomplishing this. Um, and so in this far and near language is something that we see throughout scripture. We see it a decent amount in the Old Testament. Um, I've got a few passages here. Uh, I, Psalm 148:14. He raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. Deuteronomy 4, 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? So this is, a, this is the idea that those are, who are far off, the Gentiles, and those who are near, are, we're bringing everybody near to God. So physical, spiritual reality of the Gentiles being far off, they are brought near. They are becoming, and we're going to see, they're not just brought near, they're brought near, and then they're made into one new humanity, in essence, and then they're used to build the church of God. I feel like I'm talking nonstop. Any thoughts so far? Any corrections? Any corrections? The in Christ thing? Yeah. Um, it just reminds me like the Christian term is like a derogatory yeah. thing. And so it's like the early Christians were known as those that were in Christ. Uh, that's like positional, relational, mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff. In, in Colossians, it talks about um, our life being hidden with Christ, right? Um, and so there's a, there's a, you know, we, the one new man, it's like both the Jews and the Gentiles, all the people that were elected were raised to new life at the cross together, mm -hmm. um, regardless of when you're born. Yep. When, where. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh. I think like the, the eating 
uh, even playing field that you mentioned, like, I mean, that's like, you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Kind of lost my train of thought there, but. You're good. I appreciate it. Um, so then 14, he says, for he himself is our peace. Again, that peace reference. This is hostility to peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And a few different people noted this dividing wall. Um, and I want to go into it a little bit because I think it creates a good imagery for us. So the dividing wall um, may be referring to the physical wall in the temple that separated the court of the Gentiles from everybody else. And I've got a little bit of a longer quote, but I think it's pretty helpful for us to kind of understand what actually was going on, like how, how separated these people had become. So the, the dividing wall that was present when Paul was writing this letter would have been the third iteration of the temple. So the Solomon's temple, and then there was another king, and then Herod's temple. So Herod's temple, and every time they built the temple, they further separated out the Gentiles. And so this court of the Gentiles was a very explicit place. <clears throat> and so the, the quote is, some argue that this refers literally to the temple balustrade or soreg, which is separated, which separated the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts and the sanctuary. It was a notable feature of Herod's temple. Again, if you go back to the Old Testament you, and you, uh, you look at the explanation for how Solomon built his temple, there's not this, this clear separating wall for Gentiles specifically. So this, was a, this, this gets back to those first two verses where the Jews have elevated their circumcision to a point where they are like, we are totally separate from these uncircumcised people, these scornful people. So the temple itself was elevated on a platform. Around it was the court of the priests. To the east, the court of Israel. And further east was the court of women. These three courts for the priests, the laymen, and the lay women of Israel, respectively, were all on the same elevation as the temple itself. From this level, one descended five steps to a walled platform. And then on the other, on the other side of the wall, 14 more steps to another wall, beyond which was the outer court or court of the Gentiles. So two walls of separation and a bunch of steps so that the Gentiles, if they were even to look at the temple, would have to look up at all. Even, even the people that were not in the temple, that were just in the common courts for the lay people, they would be on a physical, another level with two Three, technically with the steps, two or three levels of physical separation. Uh, this was a spacious court running right around the temple and its inner courts. From any part of it, the Gentiles could look up and view the temple, but were not allowed to approach it. They were cut off from it by the surrounding wall, which was 1.5 meters or five foot stone barricades. Um, and it had uh, warnings displayed on it. And they actually dug up one of the displays and it says... Um, I think in like the 1970s, and it says, no foreigner may enter within the barrier enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. So they had taken this motif of the Old Testament where God was not approachable and taken it on for themselves and said, if you approach us, even in the courts, not even in the temple, but if you approach us Jews, then you're responsible for your own death. So this, this is the kind of people that God is going to create peace with, that God is going to break down these barriers. So this dividing wall barrier is being broken down. And uh, someone else has mentioned this, I can't remember who, uh, in Acts 21, where, we're talking, where they were talking about the Paul um, going, to, uh, going to Ephesus or going to Jerusalem and potentially bringing somebody in, into the temple, and it created a big riot in 21. Um, interestingly, he was he was accused of bringing Trophimus, who was, an, who was an Ephesian, into the temple. But they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill Paul, even though he's a Jew, for bringing a Gentile into the temple. Even just the accusation of that led to a huge riot and... Um, <clears throat> 
and uh, calls for his death and imprisonment. So this is really serious separation. This is holy versus unholy or perceived holiness versus perceived unholiness. Um, and it, it highlights how much hostility was truly present between these people. As, uh, as our hostility between us and God outside of Christ is severe, this hostility between these two people was severe and significant. So how does God do this? So in chapter uh, verse 15, it says, um, he's, he's so 14, he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. 14 ends in hostility, 15 ends in peace. So what is happening here between these two verses? Well, he says he's abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What do, what do we think that means? All of the law except for the moral law. So the Ten Commandments stands, all of the other 600 and some yeah. odd, those are done away with. They're abolished. They're yeah. no use. No use, yep. Yeah, you're right. So there, the three kind of divisions of the law are the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral. You could kind of probably put civil and ceremonial together because they, the civil law governed how the the nation of the commonwealth of Israel was, was to govern themselves. The ceremonial law had to do with all of the ways that we were kept clean. Um, and the moral law obviously was not abolished. God, Jesus says that, that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So what we're talking about here is primarily the ceremonial law. The way that we are made holy is not bound in the ceremonies of the temple. He's broken down the dividing wall. He's made the temple and the ceremonial law and the ordinances of that law obsolete. <clears throat> There's also a sense in which he has broken down the law of commandments from a moral perspective in the mm -hmm. sense that the, the moral law is now not what gives us salvation. So following the moral law is not what gives us salvation. So in a sense, he's altered that, and there's other verses that talk more clearly about this, but our following of the moral law does not give us salvation. And that's obviously even today uh, uh, an area where people can get, um, get caught up. And I think it's important to note that the moral law was never salvific. It was to point people to recognize that they could not uh, fulfill the moral law mm -hmm. and they needed to be reconciled to a holy God. And so even, even when the moral law was given, it wasn't follow these and you'll be saved. Mm -hmm. It was uh, follow these because these are my perfect standards. Yeah. But you're not going to be able do it. Sure. Therefore, because you can't do it, these are the ceremonies that you have to go through in order to not atone for, but be covered by. Yeah. Right. Sure. And I think there's a sense in which, just like they elevated circumcision, mm -hmm. they also elevated this yes. moral law as right. a way to justify right. themselves before God. Yes. Um, if someone has, it can pull up Colossians 2, 11... And then 16 through 22, this is another kind of parallel passage to, to what we're talking about here. 11 and then 16. 16 through 22. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement in the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, 
It grows with the growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? So that's, again, Paul extrapolating more than he does in Ephesians about what this abolishing of the law and commandments really means. It means more than just um, we're going we're gonna to get rid of the ceremonial law. It's like he almost is mocking this idea of like do not taste, do not touch. Like that's not what's important anymore. And he also mentions in that um, passage the one body, the idea of this one body, which ends uh, verse 15, this one new man which is the corporate church that's being formed and it's being made of Jew and Gentile. So 13, there's hostility. We're going to, or 14, there's hostility. We're going to break down that hostility and make peace. One new man, we're going to make peace. And this one new man is going to be the corporate church. And then 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So reconciliation to this new man through Christ's work on the cross. So this is, again, this in Christ status versus what is being accomplished. This, this peace is being accomplished through Christ's work on the cross. And what does it do? Does it tamp down hostility? Does it kind of just say, well, go stand over there, hostility? No, it kills hostility. This is this death life thing that we see in chapter one and chapter two and, and as we continue is a final thing like this is going to happen hostility will be killed in christ because of what christ did on the cross this hostility to peace transition is happening now <clears throat> and um so 17 and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to pe and peace to those who were near for through him we now have access in one spirit to the Father. So this is um, the idea, again, this far off and near. So this is not just, this message is not just for the Gentiles. So the Jews don't can, can kind of check out. There were probably some Jews in the church of Ephesus hearing this, this letter being read. And they might say, oh, the Gentiles, he's talking about the Gentiles now. But no, he's not. He's taught God, Jesus came to preach peace to the Gentiles who are far, that's the reference there, and to those who are near, to the Jews. This is a this is a preaching of peace to everybody. And what is so what does this preaching of peace refer to? And there, there was a big long list um, in some of the commentaries about what does this mean, the incarnation? Is this just Jesus' earthly ministry? Is this the cross and resurrection? Um, this preaching of peace to those who are near and far off? Um, is this the post-resurrection church preaching peace um, to those who are near and far off? Um, the, I think the big idea is not like what the methods are for this preaching of peace, but that it occurred and that it specifically needed to occur to both the Jews and the Gentiles. They needed reconciliation just as much as um, the Gentiles did. We see this again, beginning of Ephesians, that verse one through three is a level playing field. All were dead in sin and trespasses. They were all, everybody was in this, on the same, in the same status vertically with God. And then that um, is, is what's required. Romans, in chapter three of Romans, it talks about this as well, how the Jews needed Christ just as much as the Gentiles did. What I thought was cool in chapter, in verse 18 is, um, the Trinitarian nature of that little paragraph there, or the little statement. For through him, Christ, we both have access in one spirit, the Holy Spirit, to the Father. So this is a Trinitarian action. This, this hostility to peace action is occurring in a Trinitarian way. Um, the other thing that I thought was, was interesting to note is up until this point, um, the reference is to God, and now we're talking about the Father. So there's this family kind of discussion that will, will kind of play out in verses 19 through 22. 
but the reference changes from God to Father. Part of that is probably, or most of that is probably the Trinitarian reference, um, but the idea that we're talking about family language now. Um, both have access together as one new people, the Jew and Gentile, and the access is through the dividing wall, through the breakdown of that ceremonial system, and to God himself. Any thoughts while we got 10 minutes? I'm staying on time. I was just, I was thinking of uh, Romans 5, just the first couple verses. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And it's that the, the ceremonial laws that pointed to Christ, this is where Hebrews comes in, right? The substance has been has been has come. Yeah, we know not not no longer needs the need the type and shadows. The substance is here, and it's the the death of an animal could never give the forgiveness of sins. But they, they pointed toward Christ as a in Him. There's forgiveness of sins. Mm-hmm. Both Jews and Gentiles, the peace that we have uh, with God is that justification. Yeah, no longer justified by. You know, other things that is the, the substance of Christ yeah that's awesome and the access language is all right the access language the hope language um, and that's really where verses 19 through 22 kind of take us to this hope this this hopeful okay so um, this is who you used to be horizontally and vertically this is who you used to be this is what God has done for you to to reconcile you and to give you peace and now this is the the result this is what happens next so you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of god built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets uh christ jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the lord in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, Trinitarian language to finish that. So remember those five things, right? They were Christless, and Christ has come to them. They are now in Christ. They were godless, but now God is saying that he, you're, they're part of his family. They were stateless, and now they are um, fellow citizens. They were friendless, and now they're saints and members of the household of God. They had no hope, and now they have hope. So all five of those things that Paul lays out for the Gentiles in verse 13 have been flipped over, and he's now promised all five. We have now all five of those things promised to them. So they used to be deficiencies, and now they are part of their identity at this point. So... Um, so, so verse 19 says, so then this is another kind of transition, right? Uh, but now this is who you used to be, but now, and then, so then indicative imperative. So then what do we do? Um, the Geneva Bible says now, therefore, which I think is a little bit more than so now, therefore you're no longer, your status is not what it used to be. You're no longer strangers and aliens. Your fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. So your fellow citizens of the saints, your fellow citizens with the Jews, that you used to have this physical, spiritual, social, political separation from, and now your fellow saints in a, in a, your citizens together with them. So you have those rights, duties, and privileges, except it's a much better, it's a much better government, it's a much better kingdom than the Commonwealth of Israel that was finite and fraught with sin and problems, you're now in God's kingdom and the citizen benefits are significantly better than the Commonwealth of Israel. And you're members of a household. God is father and you have brothers and sisters now. So Paul talks about, Paul references the church this way. He talks a lot about brethren or refers to them as brethren. So there's this vertical, I have now have God as my father in this household but then I have a bunch of siblings. So it's not just that we're bringing people together into one country. 
and trying to get them to get along and have peace with each other. But we're putting them from the country, which has its own special connotations, right? The kingdom of God is a special thing. But we're saying, no, you're part of a family. The most, the most um, well-defined, close-knit relationship that we have on this earth is our family. For all the positives and negatives of that, right? Um, also touching on like the whole holy thing, it reminds me of Second Peter one in the mm -hmm. opening. Yeah. Um, where Peter, one of the you know, he was an Israelite mm -hmm. uh, and an apostle, and he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And it's like that's true of anyone. Yeah. Who is in Christ. Yep. That's awesome. Um, the last two, the last three verses kind of talk about this building <laughs> of the church. So built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. There's other references to Christ being the cornerstone. Um, so God's church is being built. The foundation are the apostles and the prophets. And there's a little bit of like ambiguity about what that means. Does that mean just the New Testament apostles and prophets? Because the, they, they put a lot of emphasis on the order in which it doesn't say prophets and apostles. It says apostles and then prophets. Um, what Stott comes to is that this is not, this is, this is the New Testament apostles. These are the apostles that Jesus um, named and commissioned plus um, Paul. And the prophets would be kind of these people with the specific message. But what Stock kind of gets to is that this is not necessarily people as much as it is their instruction, their message. So the, the church is built on a foundation of the New Testament scriptures. That's, that's kind of the idea. The apostles and prophets thing, um, I did read a commentary from uh, Sam Storms, who's a uh, continuationist. And he uses this to say the prophets are kind of still, the apostles and prophets are still kind of building the church. If I may, are you saying something like apostle meaning sent ones and then prophets meaning like the message that's being sent? Yeah. And then what is what is that? Because it doesn't say prophet, because we I, I always think about the prophets being kind of the Old Testament prophets after, you know, and then the apostles are Jesus' sent ones. But the, because... They reverse it. And they do this in another passage. I think Ephesians 3, 5. They talk about apostles and then prophets. So does the order matter? Are we getting too into the weeds? Probably. We're almost out of time. So we'll keep going. The idea is that the church is built on the New Testament scripture. The message that they are giving is much more important than the people. And in essence, what Paul is doing here is he's talking about this building metaphor using people in order to because he's talking about people this whole time, right? He's talking about Jews and Gentiles, and we're going to be the, the blocks that are going to build the church, right? So in order to keep the metaphor straight, he talks about the foundation is the apostles and prophets, but really it's about what they're telling us, what their what their message is, right? So That's because that message is even, it's not that the Old Testament no longer matters. No. The message brings the fuller revelation of all that the Old Testament. So we, we as Gentiles are brought into that great, history of, redemp of redemption yeah this is our story yes uh, so it's so but, the foundation of our story is yeah points to us yeah and then matthew 16 18 which obviously our uh our roman catholic friends would disagree with us but when jesus says you're peter on this i'll build my rock he's not talking about peter the person he's talking about the what what the message is the that this is this is how i'm going to build my church that foundation so that kind of gives us a little bit more context the cornerstone, uh, the idea that the cornerstone is going to keep the building steady, it's going to keep it in line, and it's going to keep it together. It's going to keep it unified. So bringing that whole idea that Christ is the cornerstone, it's going to bring these two people together in Christ, right? In Christ all throughout this passage, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, um, you are you once were far off and now are brought near. You once were alienated and now you're part of God's family. That idea is God, Christ is the cornerstone of holding this all together and keeping these two people groups, now one man, together. And then we are, um, the build, we're building together the church. So 
we're just about out of time. I just wanted to finish with talking about that hope and we'll go to Revelation. I'm not the first one that's done that. Other people have talked about Revelation, but it was more the minute, the beginning. Um, this is Revelation 21. Um, the translation's not ESV, so I apologize for that. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down of heaven, down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorning her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, right? This is the idea of this dwelling place of God. The tabernacle of God. <clears throat> I lost my place. Um, is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. So that ties in this hope. Like, what are we building? We're building this church. Um, and that the result, the end, the end goal of this is that this dwelling place of God is eventually going to be finished. And God is going to dwell bodily with his people. Um, and that imagery is just so beautiful. Any uh, final thoughts or commentary? That's all I had. The child, it's 10 o'clock even, so we're good. <laughs> child care will be happy. All right, well, let me pray for us and we can be dismissed. Father, thank you again for these truths. Thank you for bringing us near. Thank you for giving, revealing it, this to us in such a powerful way that first we can understand it, but then that we can um, just marvel in what Christ has done for us and how it changes everything for how we see each other, how we see the world, and how we see the church. Father, I pray that you'd be with us today as we go to worship. Again, keep our, uh, open our hearts to what you have for us. Um, we pray that you'd be with us. It's in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.